pray together, please. Father, thank you that you are a God who pursues the unlovely and the unlikable and the broken. Thank you for your great grace and thank you for the great work that you do in us and you call us to yourself to be committed followers and new creations in Christ. And thank you that we can come to you just as we are. And you take us from there and remake us and remold us. Father, use your word today to do just that, to reshape us and to encourage us and, and uh, to just help us grow in our conforming to the image of Christ. Father, Father, we do desire to grow in our commitment to Christ. We, we wrestle with this world and we fight against the flesh. We need your word to do its work. And we need to bow the knee in your presence and just rest in the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. Father, you use your word for that sanctifying work. Would you do that now, I pray, as we study together in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, grab your Bibles and let's go to Matthew chapter 10. We're working our way through Matthew's gospel and I trust that you're benefiting from this, this series as Matthew, one of the disciples and an eyewitness recorded for us um, in such tremendous detail, the stories and the teaching of our Lord Jesus. We're in the middle of a teaching section. I reminded you last week that Matthew breaks itself down in sections and there's a lot of high activity and miracles and action and then, and then it's like they just stop and sit down and Jesus does extensive teaching. We're in a section in chapter 10 where Jesus is teaching on discipleship. A disciple is a learner. It's a student who follows a master. And, and Jesus is specifically in this context, as we've reminded you, teaching the twelve. Mark's gospel in chapter 6 tells us that after this section of teaching, he then sent them out in pairs. So six groups of two went out and he was prepping them and priming them for what they would face as they went out as his disciples. And so the first level at which we receive our message this morning is an understanding of the text that it is the direct teaching of our Lord Jesus to the twelve disciples. But you'll notice in this passage that the longer Jesus teaches, the more it takes on the feeling of a telescopic view. It's a long view. It's, it's, it's teaching to all of His disciples through the centuries. And you'll even notice the pronoun change in and, and it'll turn into, and whoever will follow me must. And He broadens it out to whoever would be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's something precious about people coming to Christ, isn't there? And, and they acknowledge their sinfulness and they recognize that Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and in this passage, our Lord Jesus is, it's as though He's taking us to another level. He's saying, look, you come and follow me, but then be my disciples. And uh, I don't know about you, but it was very encouraging if you were there last week at the Shenandoah River uh, to witness the testimonies of 20 who entered the waters of baptism and proclaimed Christ as their Lord and Savior publicly, uh, giving a public face to an, a decision that they had made previous. And they know Jesus Christ, and now they, out of obedience, I, I identify with His death, His burial, His resurrection, and coming up out of the waters... It's like saying, I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of Christ. 
There's a beautiful spot there in the Shenandoah River where we were. It reminds me of another beautiful river that we have in our state. We do live in a beautiful state, don't we? And um, I spent some time down in southern West Virginia at Appalachian Bible College. Formative, good years for me. And, and there's a river there that's called the New River. You're probably aware of it. It's, um, uh, it's a river that has gained popularity because of whitewater rafting and kayaking. It's worth the drive down. Some of you have been down to the New River Gorge Bridge. It's just a a huge single-span bridge there. There's a visitor center. And if you've been there, you've been awed by God's creation and and then recognized incredible engineering of man to build such a bridge. And in the early 1980s, when I was at Appalachian Bible College, uh, many of you are aware that I was a whitewater rafting guide. And I've told this story before, but I want to use it to set the, the tone and the context for how I believe Jesus is pulling at his disciples this morning. I remember on a trip where we had a group of customers who we were taking down through Alpine Ministries there, a a wilderness aspect of Appalachian Bible College. And on one of the uh, river trips there, it was very popular to stop early in our day at a spot called Jump Off Rock. And we would eddy out and pull over and there was a rock that stuck up and there was a pool below the rock that was safe to jump into. And we would just let the the people enjoy jumping off the rock. And sometimes if you were a cool guide, you could run and do flips and impress the customers or tackle somebody off the cliff and just play and carry on. And one particular morning we uh, were heading down the river. We stopped at Jump Off Rock and I noticed in the activity that there was one man who was just standing still. He was a mature, grown man, maybe in his late 30s, early 40s, and there in his life vest, standing and just watching. And we only had so much time that we could enjoy Jump Off Rock, and then I hollered out, all right, let's load up, let's go, time to go, everybody's last jump, and they run and jump off the rock, squealing, and swim over to our boat, and, and I noticed that this gentleman was just standing there. And I knew what he was thinking. He was trying to face his fear. He he wanted to jump off a jump off rock, but for some reason it was hard for him to do. I was maybe 10 or 12 feet and um, from down below it doesn't look too bad. But when you get up top and look down, there's something that it does to that little spot in your stomach that makes it just kind of waffle around. And I hollered for him and said, hey, come on, jump down or, or come on down. There was a path he could come down. And he just stood there and he was like frozen and he wouldn't move. And I hollered at him and finally the the boat was calling. The people, the customers were, come on, come on, come on. And now he was a spectacle. And finally I just said, hey, we're leaving. And we shoved off and headed down the river. I think we were a couple hundred yards down river when he finally jumped. Hard to do. Now I wonder if that's a picture of where some of us are in our relationship with Christ. We know Jesus Christ is our Savior. We're, we're working on understanding our salvation. We, we know some things about the Bible. We are trying to be committed to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, we recognize the exclusivity of the message we've been hearing now, though, that Jesus is calling us to be narrow way Christians, narrow gate Christians, and that broad is the road that leads to destruction. And we're recognizing that to be a true follower of Christ, there's not that many on the way, on that way. And and you're on the edge of discipleship rock and he's calling to you. Come, let's go. Jump in with Jesus here. Identify with him. 
as a disciple, a learner, a follower, where my life is integrated with Christ and He is my identity. He is who sets my agenda. But there's something on the inside that holds me back from this commitment level, from from saying, I I don't know if I really want to jump in with Jesus. There's just so much about the world that presses in on us and, and there's just maybe... Truth be known, some fear, especially when I read a passage like Matthew chapter 10, that is, it's just a scary passage. We would include this passage among the hard teachings of Christ. It's as though he's down in the boat or down in the river and he's, come on, jump off with me, let's go. But know this, when you jump, this is going to happen. And that's what he's been teaching in chapter 10. He says, um, back in verse 17, Know that men will deliver you over to courts and they're going to flog you in the synagogues. You're going to get into trouble. This is what our message was about last week. And they're going to drag you in front of governors and kings and they're going to flog you and they're going to put you in prison and they might even cut your head off. And we recognize the first level of teaching is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's coming in their own lives and as he sends them out in pairs and But then we recognize from the study of Scripture as well that they make this first missionary journey. And and during this time in the ministry of Christ, and they all kind of get back together and nobody's been flogged and nobody's had their head cut off. And and again, it sets us up for the telescopic view of the passage, doesn't it? These things are coming. You need to prepare for these things. The problem with it is that we're a little bit afraid And in this passage, as Jesus lays out the challenge of what it means to be a disciple and that there's a price to be paid and it's going to cost you something, Jesus, in his own words, would teach that you need to consider the cost. And today, he's calling us as his disciples to jump in, jump off. Keep that word picture in mind as we read our text today. And as we continue in this teaching section on discipleship, our Lord is going to touch on three, we could call them zones or territories of our lives, three aspects of the ramifications of discipleship. The first one is found in verse 24 and verse 25. Let's read there where we left off last week. We touched upon it briefly. And let's head on through the passage Picture the disciples there. Picture Jesus wanting to prepare them for what is to come, recognizing that it's not going to be easy and recognizing that to jump off discipleship rock might mean that some of us have some fear to deal with. There are some serious matters. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher. Verse 24, Matthew 10. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. That's the goal. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? The first critical or crucial zone that we want to talk about this morning that we have to deal with if we're going to jump off discipleship rock is, number one, the disciple's identity. The disciple's identity. Jesus is really talking about an identity crisis that you're going to face. 
He uses a logical argument here that they would well understand, and it is, in a sense, a, as Jesus often did, arguing, as he does throughout the passage even, and through the Sermon on the Mount we saw this, arguing from the lesser to the greater. Notice how he says, the disciple is not above his teacher, the servant above his master. In fact, the end goal, and it's enough, it, our goal ultimately is to be like them. And then he warns them. Logically speaking, this is what they've done to me, your master. They've called me Beelzebul. And the logical conclusion is that if they call the master Beelzebul, if they call the teacher Beelzebul, then they're going to call the servant or the student Beelzebul. Are you ready for this in your identity, disciple? When you jump off discipleship rock... You take on a new identity. It is the identity of Christ. And the logical conclusion of that identity is that what they call Jesus, they will call you. Beelzebul is an interesting name. Uh, it started out as Beelzebub. That was, um, it really was like a, a Hebrew derogatory word for Satan. To identify the devil. It comes from Beelzebub, who was a pagan Canaanite deity. You know, the Israelites did not mix with the Canaanites, and the Canaanites were the pagans. Baby sacrifice, cutting of bodies. Uh, you picture Elijah at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and they cry out to their gods, and they had all kinds of gods, and they cut themselves with knives. These pagan ritualistic practices and among the Canaanites were many despicable gods among whom was Beelzebub it was specifically notated Beelzebub was the lord of the flies makes you think of maggots flies maggots rotting garbage in the Hebrew language, in the root word, that Z-B-L, Beelzebul, that Zebul, specifically had the idea of dung or defecation. And so Beelzebul would be the, the god of defecation. It was, it was, it was a horrible term. It was, it was like the, a horrible name, derogatory. Remember, the religious leaders of the day looked at Jesus, the master of the universe, King Jesus, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, and they looked at him and said, you're, you're Lord of defecation. You're Lord of the maggots. You're Satan. The only reason you can do these works, remember when they, he did miracles and they said, the only reason you can do that is because you're of the father of the devil. Can you imagine out of your mouth coming the words and the accusation to the beautiful Lord Jesus of the universe, the one who died on the cross for our sin, the one who made the way for us to have everlasting life. And someday, in His presence, when your knee will bow and be held accountable and it will be put up on the screen in full color and all to see that you called Him Lord of the Dump Pile. And so, Jesus is warning His disciples Number one, 
The first arena, the first zone that you need to deal with is your identity. And it is really an identity crisis. And it is the disciples' identity. When you jump off Discipleship Rock, you have to be ready to be called Lord of the Maggots. You need to be maligned is the word. Put down. After all, that's what they did with Jesus. Why wouldn't they do that with the student? Is the student greater than the master? Of course not. That's a simple logic. So know this, when you jump off Discipleship Rock, somewhere along the line, you just might get called bad names. Ah, but sticks and stones might break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's that being flogged and my head cut off part that I worry about in the passage in front of the governors. And so I have this fear thing, and Jesus, I think, understood his disciples. And so he talks about their identity. Number one, the disciples' identity, verses 24 and 25. How much more will they malign those of his household? If you identify with me, your new identity is going to be difficult. He then moves and speaks directly to the fear that he must know that they have in the pit of their stomach. Okay, Lord, this is new information. We're following you. We get some free food. We see the lame healed. We see the blind uh, can see. We see even the dead rise again. And we think this is a pretty good package hanging with you. And now you're trying to tell us that we're going to be called Lord of the Flies. And they call you Lord of the Flies. I don't know if I want to stand before governors and be flogged. I'm not sure I really want to jump off this rock. I might rather just enjoy my complacent, vanilla, mediocre, commitment-level life where no one thinks I'm a threat about anything. So Jesus goes on and he says, So, verse 26, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. And so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That is a profound statement. And so Jesus goes to the point of directly dealing with their fear because three times in these short verses, he looks at them and tells them to not be afraid. So we move, number one, the first critical zone that we're talking about at Jump Off Rock from Discipleship Rock is the disciples' identity. The second is the disciples' intrepidity. The disciples' intrepidity. You say, what in the world is that word? Let me explain. It's a great word. Intrepidity. Say it with me. Intrepidity. Intrepidity. Say it again. Intrepidity. You know what? It comes from the word intrepid. I'll tell you where I learned this word. I think I kind of knew it. But Jonathan's taking a dual credit 12th grade college freshman English class this year. And he has vocabulary and they're determined to edumacate him. And so they give him a list of words that most of us will never use. And I was listening to him talk about his vocabulary list and 
Janet has a great deal of interest in words and language, and I've grown to appreciate that and have even gotten to where I will stop and look up words in a dictionary when I don't understand them, and, and I don't hate doing that, and it always is kind of interesting to me. And the word on the list this week, one of the words that we were talking about in the car together was intrepid. Intrepid. Now that word you might know a little bit better. Uh, do you know what intrepid means? Um, I copied the page out of his vocabulary book and it comes from the Latin intrepidus, in, not is the prefix, not trepidus, alarmed. To not be alarmed. Intrepid means, intrepid means fearless. And as we were in the car and they were talking about the word intrepid and it was coming out that it meant to be brave and courageous and daring and unafraid and undaunted. I had been meditating on this passage earlier in the week and, and I thought to myself, that's it. We are to be intrepid. And, and as they discussed it further, it came out. I said, use that in a sentence. And you know how the vocabulary list gives a sentence and the sentence is this. The special forces of the United States Army, often called the Green Beret, are intrepid men who infiltrate enemy territory. And I thought, that's it. We're to be, we're to be fearless, intrepid infiltrators of the enemy's territory. But it's going to take courage. And... Um, so Jesus is calling the disciples to intrepidity, to be intrepid. One of the men who was a little bit older left the church, the early service this morning, shook me and said, he said, man, I really appreciate that. That helped me out. He said, I served on the USS Intrepid and never knew what that meant. <laughs> I don't know that I really had in my brain what it meant. Are you an intrepid Christian? Overcoming fear. A disciple's intrepidity, fearlessness. We move from the disciple's identity to his intrepidity. That is, Jesus says, stop being afraid. And then we have to admit to ourselves, it does almost no good for someone to look at me and say, stop being afraid. Because I can't find that switch. And I... You know, dealing with children or even dealing with adults, there are circumstances in our lives that have brought on fear that is difficult to deal with and, and, and a fear that is out of control is very hard to handle. And, and it's, you're standing there and you know, I want to jump. I want to jump. It looks fun. That little seven-year-old kid just jumped. It's great. And something inside me is, I don't want to jump. I don't want to jump. I just want to get safe. And maybe... You even know what it is. A common fear is the fear of the dark, isn't it? And some of you are afraid of the dark. You just don't admit it. You do not like to go to the back corner of the dark basement where all the cobwebs hit your face and then and just like, get in there and get out of there and it's just scary and I don't want to be afraid. So what do we do to overcome fear? How do we become intrepid? What does Jesus teach to encourage the disciples' intrepidity, fearlessness, courage. Look what he says as we begin a list that is what I call a formula for fearlessness. The first thing I want you to see that helps us overcome fear and become intrepid 
is the master's voice. Verse 26a. I think the first thing we have to realize is who's talking. It's Jesus. It's His voice. This is the... This is the comforting word of the Master, and it's just the sound of His voice calms me. And He says, do not fear. This isn't somebody who doesn't have authority or power saying this. This is my Lord and Master. This is the one I'm following. He's the authority. And he, His voice just brings comfort. And so the first thing we want to hear is the Master's voice. A fear of flying is common. And I've had a chance to fly a lot in small planes and even work on my private pilot's license. And I love little planes. Flying in big planes can kind of make me nervous. So I think I could land the little plane. I can make it happen somehow. You know, like I can handle a bank robbery. I can land a plane. (laughs) But when you're in a big plane, you're back there strapped in your seat. And then if something's going wrong, you got your head between your knees and somebody else is handling things and you don't know what's going on. That's a horrible thing. And then they make movies out of this stuff. And you watch planes fly out and blow up out of the air. Why would you watch a movie like that? And you're bumping along and it's like funny sounds and creaking and groaning and stuff's going on. And, but then the voice of the captain, right? And there's something about that voice. That's the spirit here. This is our Savior talking to us. This isn't bad information. This is a really, really reliable source. And in fact, this is, this is my master's voice. And if my master voice can be heard among among the din of everyone yelling at me and he says van jump off the rock shouldn't his voice alone be enough that i would jump off the rock and told you before you know i only have so many stories and i've been your pastor for almost 20 years so you just have to hear them again but when tasha was a little girl i would grab her and set her up on the refrigerator And then I would get down on my knees, and with great delight, she would jump. I'd say, jump, daddy will catch you. All she needed was her daddy's voice telling her what to do. Then one day, I grabbed Janet and grabbed her and set her up on the (laughs) floor. And I mean, she started yelping and carrying on. And I got down and I said, jump, go ahead. You know, the voice just didn't have the same effect. All Tasha needed was her daddy's voice. You know, all the disciple needs is the master's voice. The disciple just needs, come on, jump off the rock. Let's go. So we have his voice. Number two, we have the master's eye. Not only do we have the master's voice, he's the one teaching us. But he says, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What is this? This is the reality of the fact that as he sends out the disciples, he recognizes that there is an entire agenda of destruction against them. That the, that the cards are stacked against them. That it's a corrupt world. That they're going to have their legs knocked out from under them. That they're going to be falsely accused. That they're going to be brought in and flogged and beaten and martyred for the cause. And that it's not fair. We haven't done anything wrong. What is this all about? And so this is a word of vindication. It's the reality that the master's eye is watching. And though they have a hidden agenda, and though they have a corrupt, it's a corrupt world out there. Listen, everything, everything is going to be laid bare one day. Nothing that is covered up right now will be left covered. It will be revealed. And that which is hidden 
It will not be left unknown. It will be made known. I think about Pastor Saeed. Are you tracking with him a little bit? We ought to be praying for Pastor Saeed, this American-Iranian pastor from the Midwest who's been in an Iranian prison now for over two years anyway. And you've maybe seen his wife and his children. They've been making public appeals there. It doesn't seem to get the attention of our State Department at all. I understand in a recent news report that they've even had to take him and protect him inside the prison because ISIS is trying to get to him in the prison and kill him. And he's back in the corner of some dungeon and he's suffering for Jesus and he's a disciple and he's following Christ and this is his passage. The master says, don't be afraid. This is all going to be uncovered. There's a day of vindication coming. The whole thing's going to be sorted out. This is a future-looking word that Jesus gives of vindication. So not only do we have his voice and we have his eye. That's Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, isn't it? Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the evil and the good. He doesn't miss a thing. He's totally aware of every circumstance. As you go out in pairs, disciples, I see everything and everything will be uncovered eventually. I find comfort in the master's voice. I find comfort in the master's watchful eye. Thirdly, we have the master's words. This is different than his voice. The voice is just the reality of who he is relationally. And the sound of his voice, in essence, brings comfort. His words, what I mean by this, is his message. This is what he's mandated that we speak. We have been given an agenda. Jesus is giving his disciples an agenda. So he goes on, and that which is hidden... That, he, verse 26, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And then verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. It was not uncommon in this culture in a neighborhood for somebody to get up on their rooftop and make a, make a neighborhood announcement from the rooftop. The listener here, the disciples, they could picture that. So they just get up. Hey, everybody going to have a hog roast. I mean, uh, not a hog roast. That was a bad illustration. <laughs> going to have... Um, Steak off the grill soon. They make an announcement. There's also a word picture that is perhaps represented here when Jesus said, He said, Look, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, what you hear whispered, proclaim out loud on the housetops. There was a practice I've read that rabbis, in teaching a young student, how to speak properly publicly would stand and speak into their ear with whispers that no one else could hear. And then the student who was the disciple of the rabbi would then proclaim loudly what was being whispered in his ear. And in so doing, the rabbi was teaching him how to speak publicly. Listen, Jesus says, look, you've been, you've been learning and the picture here of what you've learned in the dark, a back room at a desk with a candlelight studying the Word. We have a picture of the Apostle Paul in our minds, don't we? Bring my coat, it's cold here in this dungeon, and bring my books. And what the Apostle Paul studied down in a dungeon, when he got out, he proclaimed with authority. 
What we've studied and what we've learned in secret and what we've meditated upon and what we've learned in our prayer life and what the Word of God teaches us, it's our job to proclaim that. And so the Master's words must go out and that's the mandate. Go into all the world and make disciples. Our job is to proclaim from the rooftops the glorious message of the Gospel. That there is a Savior from our sin. And that that stain of deepest dye that we talked about, like, like an ink bottle spilled on a beautiful fabric on a couch, and it will never be taken out. Our sin stains the fabric and essence of our lives. And we sang about that in our opening hymn. But who is a pardoning God like these? He can take the, the dye of the stain of sin and He can remove it. That's a message to proclaim from the rooftop. And he's alive. He's not dead. And so Jesus says, remember my words. Everything I've been teaching you, you go and shout it from the rooftop. So we overcome our fear by carrying out our instruction. The next thing we see has to do with the authority and the strength and the power of God. I call it the master's punch as a strength of arm, you might picture Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, a lesser to greater argument. What's the idea here? Yes, you know, this guy can take me and he can flog me and he can whip me. And we touched on this last week in our conclusion, didn't we? Afraid of what? Afraid of a loud noise? Afraid of a flash? Afraid of a bang? Afraid of a moment? But what do we gain? Heaven is gained. All things are made right. All things are made new. You can fear those guys who can take your life, but they're not the ultimate power. You want to worry about the, the long arm of God. The punch of the Master. He's the one who can not only take your life, but He can condemn your soul to hell. That's the one to fear. And fear is being used in two different ways here. We have a fear of, of bodily harm from those who could take my life, but a, but a greater overriding fear is the awe and the respect and the humility that I experience as I'm in the presence of God because this momentary affliction that a, that a governor might inflict upon me is nothing to the eternal affliction that God, our heavenly judge, can inflict upon one. He's the one that we fear, not this one. I mean, you have pictures, don't you, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sure, O king, go ahead, throw us in the fire. We don't care if our God wants to save us. He'll save us. It's not, that's good. We're okay. We go to be with him. Don't mess with us. You're messing with God. That's the whole point here. The king can throw him into fire, but the king can't throw him in eternal fire. But the king himself can be thrown into eternal fire. He better wake up. And so you have the master's punch. How about the master's care? Number five, the master's care. Look at verses 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. There it is again, a third time in the passage. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Uh, this takes us back to bird watching in chapter 6, doesn't it? I mean, what is less consequential than a sparrow? And he's talking about, aren't two of these sparrows sold for a penny? It would be like one-sixteenth of a denarii. It was... 
I guess, common in, in the marketplace. They could picture, and I've seen this in Africa, a very similar type thing in Malawi in the marketplace, where these little Tweety birds are grilled on an open flame, and they're this little shriveled up, looks like the tip of a chicken wing. And it's a whole sparrow there, and for, for a cent, a penny, you can get two of them, and you can gnaw on the little flavor and spit out the bones and throw them on the ground. It's just nothing. A little sparrow inconsequential and are you not even more valuable than many sparrows oh that's a comforting word I'm worth at least a dozen sparrows (laughs) maybe 19 20 21 sparrows and it's getting even with me no it's 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 a word picture and the whole point is his care right if he knows about the sparrow and and he we understand the whole teaching of of Matthew 6 don't be anxious. I, I take care of the birds of the air, even the sparrows. And not one of them falls. I know right where they are. I know how many hairs are on your head. For some of us, that changes moment by moment. <laughs> and it's a picture of the Master's love and care. If He cares about an essentially valueless little Tweety bird, He will care for you. I, am, I overcome my fear by hearing His voice by knowing that his eye is upon me, by carrying out the message of his words with authority and confidence because it's been given me as a task to proclaim. And I recognize his power and his might and his authority has punch that no one else's punch has. And then I recognize that the most inconsequential little creature, he's fully aware of them. How much more, lesser to greater, is he aware of me, the master's care? Finally, the master's smile or approval is what I'm saying here. Number six, the master, in our formula or recipe for overcoming fear. And so, verse 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I think one of the most pitiful pictures we have in Scripture, and I picture Peter being a pretty husky guy, pretty strong guy from work. Not an old guy, young, strong in his prime, and a little girl looks up at him and says, Weren't you with Jesus? I swear by the gods I don't know the man. I remember the passage where it says there, Jesus' eyes met with him. And the rooster crowed, and he denied his Lord. And there's a principle here. You're going to deny Jesus? I think the point of the passage is that if you are a denier of Jesus, then you are not one of his. And you cannot say you're a disciple if you're a denier. And if you deny Jesus, just know that the end result is... He has no ownership of you and he cannot introduce you to his father. He will deny you. In other words, when the father, as it were, sitting there in ultimate judgment says, is that one of yours? Jesus will say, nope, that's not one of mine. I think at an appropriate level as well, we should live with a little bit of fear of becoming Peter. We live with a little bit of fear that I could deny my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And maybe one reason I'm standing on Discipleship rock, and I hesitate to really plunge in and go, is that I don't, I'm not 100% sure where my loyalties lie. But what could be more motivational? What could bring more strength in a moment of fear and trepidation than to realize 
that I will not deny my Lord and that there will be a moment when I enter His presence, whatever that vehicle is that gets me into His presence, it won't last too long. And I enter His presence and He looks at me and smiles, my Lord and Savior, the Master of the universe, and He says, well done, and He says, this is one of mine. He would not deny me. And I'm not embarrassed of my Master. And and by God's grace, I could stand before a governor, I could stand before the executioner, I could stand before the mocking crowd, I could stand before a little girl's tweety voice and pointed finger and never deny my Lord and find myself fearless, longing for his approval. Doesn't that make sense? That my master would smile. He might even smile while they're bashing you. I mean, don't take that too literally, but it's like, look at him, man. He's taking it. Like a football coach who sees his young linebacker really taking some hits for the team and for the cause. It makes him smile and pump their fist a little bit. It's like, yeah, he's, he's one of us. That I would deny my Lord should scare the living daylights out of me. Well... That's the formula for fearlessness from our Lord. These are the teachings in His sovereignty and in His omniscience. He's fully aware. He's fully capable of taking care of us. And He wants to comfort us. And He wants us to be intrepid disciples. We move from the disciples' identity to the disciples' intrepidity. And finally, let's just reference it and we will pray and leave. Prepare for the picnic the disciples' fidelity. This will demand a little more work, but let's just read 34 through 39, and with this we close. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a hard teaching of Christ, and it's going to take a little bit to unpack that. What in the world does he mean? I did not come to bring peace, but I brought a sword. And I'm going to turn family members against one another. I'll tell you, the short word is fidelity. He's looking for a disciple to jump off the rock. And he's number one. That's it. The fidelity, the loyalty, the commitment to Jesus. That's what a disciple is called to. You ready to jump off discipleship rock? What are you afraid of? I remembered years ago when I was a youth pastor, I used to use a quote and I, I looked it back up. Hadn't thought of it for a long time. It kind of captures what we're talking about today as we conclude. It's attributed to a young African pastor and it was found in his papers after he was martyred. One account that I read, and I think that maybe nobody knows really who wrote this or even if it's real, but it's really good. <laughs> One account is that it was a Ugandan pastor under Idi Amin who wrote this in his prison cell. Listen to this statement of this one who jumps off discipleship rock. 
This is what is attributed to this African pastor. He writes, I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer and labor by Holy Spirit power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road may be narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up or let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all know and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you take now this um, section of a few verses in the challenge of our Lord Jesus to his disciples and to us today and through the work of your Holy Spirit, bring conviction and clarity and confidence and courage that we would be intrepid disciples, that we would be jumpers, and that we would go all out. Show us how to do that. Show us what it looks like. Show us what to let go of. Reveal in the way that only you can do through your word and through the Holy Spirit at work in us. Reveal in us our idols, our, our shortcomings, our loves of the world the things that distract us and bring a clarity on what it means to be disciples of Christ in our lives, we pray. Help us to cast our cares upon you and to trust in you and to jump into your arms and to trust your voice and to find comfort in your watching eye and to be bold with the message because it's your words that you gave us to say. And we're not making this stuff up on our own. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.